Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Nineteen seventy-seven, and uh, 10CC had a couple big hits. That wasn't one of them. We are about to meet meet Robert Katzberg, the man who kept me up all last night because I was finishing your book and I just loved it. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Believe me, it was uh, it was a great read. Of course, I was titillated by all the stories, but I am still just completely flummoxed at the thought that only 2% of federal trials go, well, federal cases go to trial. That means 98% settle. That's a horror. How long, it is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I know in your book you made the distinction about the minimum sentencing, but still, I, I look at this and I say, these defendants must be scared witless if they're not going to take their day in court. Absolutely, and the problem is some of their lawyers are too. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's the problem. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that, and you brought up some some great trial attorneys. And absolutely, an undergraduate major in drama would probably be a good idea because it is, in fact, a performance. And the best were just spellbinding. I mean, some of the closing arguments and some of them in your uh, in your uh, book are just tremendous. But it seems like that's a dying breed. Well, that's the problem. Um, it's as though Broadway actors uh, were not available, uh, were not being called on because there were no more Broadway shows. Uh, how could they maintain their skill set? You know, one of the lawyers that I, I was fortunate enough to try, you know, cases all over the country. And one of the cases I tried was in Illinois in Springfield with one of Chicago's very best lawyers, Pat Tuitt. Uh-huh. And uh, he was just extraordinary, as I point out in the book, in, in, in the trial that I uh, tried with him in Springfield, Illinois, uh, just a superstar. And uh, he's retired now, and there aren't that many young people to fill his shoes, assuming they could be filled to begin with, but it's just frightening, um, you know, because this is performance art. And if you can't perform, you can't learn your trade. And if you can't perform, if you've learned your trade, you, your skill set gets rusty from lack of use. And if you are older and you are retiring, uh, then you're out of the picture as well as a matter of age. So who is left? 
Right. And where are they going to get the skill? Because, you know, the, the wording of the arguments, that's the art. But the skill is being able to practice this regularly and stand up there and deliver it. And that is a skill. It's practicing it like learning to play a musical instrument. And if you're a young lawyer working for the state or the government in some way or even an underling at a private firm, the likelihood that you're actually going to get trial experience seems like it's less and less every day. That's the problem. That is exactly the problem. And, you know, you put your finger on it exactly. And what I'm trying to do in the vanishing trial is without putting people to sleep, entertain them, but nonetheless instruct them on the world that once was and that we are in desperate need to have reclaimed. And time is the enemy. Right, and I I agree with you, not only for, obviously, entertainment value, but this idea that the government can now say, well, you don't go along with us, you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail, so sign here, take a felony, and it's two years, and people are, oh, thank you, thank you. This is is not justice. No, it it is not, and the truth of the matter is this is not a liberal problem, this is not a conservative problem. There are very liberal judges who are very much against the the status quo. There are very conservative judges who are very much against the status quo. Uh, This is all um, an unfortunate result of the lock-em-up politics of the 1980s in the United States where everybody ran for office, senator, congressman, president, by being tough on crime. Right. And the tougher you were, you know, if you were tougher than I was, um, and, you, know, you were perceived to be, quote, tougher than I, you won the election and I lost. And so the statistics are just mind-boggling. Between 1990 and 2000, which, is, which was a very low-crime decade, the federal prison population in the U.S. doubled. Mm-hmm. And between 2000 and 2005, it doubled again. Yeah, this is, uh, we are per capita the, uh, the, the worst in terms of uh, people in prison in this country. The thing that really bothers me about prison is that basically we're sending, in the case of young men in particular, but we're sending people to be raped. I mean, what's going on in these prisons is horrendous, and there is no control over that. And, you know, all these people who say, well, I'm against the death penalty. Yeah, but you're, what, you're for raping people in prison? And it seems like people don't understand that that's reality. Well, the, the cumulative impact on going to jail um, is much more broad spread and much more pernicious than is generally recognized. You have a father who leaves his, his children and his wife, and he's away, and when he's in jail, he's not learning anything about um, the skills that he needs to acquire once he does get out to participate in society, to be a productive citizen. He's learning nothing while he's wasting away, and his children are starving, and his wife is on welfare. I mean, it's the, you know, forget about the unbelievable cost to house a federal prisoner every year, that is to say $38,000, the cost is much greater than that because invariably you have most of the families on public assistance because the father is in jail. 
Yeah, and oh, he's learning, by the way, but not anything that would contribute to society. He's, he's, exactly. he's learning a lot. And, exactly. you know, in terms of the family, that, that's another thing I, I saw. I don't know, I was w- walked by C-SPAN on TV once and saw they were having hearings on what it cost for calling an inmate or an inmate calling, you know, collect to families on the prison phone system. And it was outrageous. It wound up like close to $15 a call in some case. And there were people saying, well, you know, they deserve what they get. And I'm thinking to myself, their family's not in prison. And, you know, there are so many things like that, as I say, that the the system is just so broken. But when you talk about uh, tough on crime and doubling and doubling again the prison population, I don't think anybody is thinking tough on crime means lock people up for, for instance, drug offenses, things of this nature. Now, of course, you know, if they hurt somebody in the process, yes, that's an underlying crime. I'm I'm for that. But there are so many things that we have no business incarcerating people for and well yeah again i mean you i mean i i i couldn't agree with you more it's both a federal problem and a state problem but people have to understand my my experience is federal um and so you know you write what you know and so i wrote about the federal system uh, and the problem is most pernicious in the federal system because in the federal district courts that's where the power of the united states is manifested um, if you have any if you have you know if you have any kind of uh, substantial case it's going to be a federal case if you have a terrorist case it's going to be a federalist case if you have a major organized crime case chances are overwhelming it's going to be a federal case that's where the power of the sovereign is and that's our most important level of criminal justice and if the average citizen is being excluded from the most important level of criminal justice, we've got a problem. Well, right, and it, it's absolutely systemic. And, and yes, some some of the crimes you look at, in addition to drugs, some of the structuring offenses and other offenses. I mean, you, you just you go through this, and people are just willing to give up their rights because they're so afraid. If I don't do this, then uh, then I'm I'm in trouble. Now, before we do anything else, I got to ask you: when you were talking about Judge Platt, you said barred the media from the civil trial of Connie Francis. What was she yep. on trial for? Um, no, she was. She was. She wasn't. She had sued. Oh, um, she had been raped. Right at the holiday at the uh, Howard That's Johnson's. Correct, yeah. and there was a, a civil lawsuit. Okay, that emanated from her being a victim. Okay, and Tom Platt, bless his soul, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Um, blocked all of the uh, uh, reporters out of it, and the Second Circuit Court of Appeals uh, quickly. Uh, reverse that uh, decision. Yeah, no, I, I remember that, right? But I was thinking on top of that, she actually, okay, so uh, she was the, the victim there. Now, was Judge Platt the guy you kept saying thank you to in your closing? Yes. Ah, that was great. That was, yes. That was uh, just, just terrific. And uh, you are federal, of course, but 2% going to trial on federal charges, do you have any idea what percent's going to trial on state charges? Well, that's why in the book I have the chapter about Barry Krinsky, who right. um, is a state court the practitioner, Krinsky. and he indicates, and, and the statistics bear him out, that very little has changed in the state system. The state system still has pretty much the same kind of trial level um, uh, in, in New York and most of the major cities 
than uh, than it had back way you know back in the day and the reason is that the reason why the federal system has changed is because the federal sentencing guidelines were enacted by Congress mm-hmm. to take away discretion from federal judges but there was no specific parallel in every single one of the states to do the same thing. Uh, now, some states did that, and again, in the book, there's a, there's a, a portion about the state of Oklahoma, and right. essentially, I'm asking us to become Oklahoma. What happened with Oklahoma was that in the 1980s, they also adopted, in big, in, on a very high level, the lock em up mentality to such a degree where Oklahoma had the highest per capita prison population in the United States. Right. And after a while, they realized that this was crazy. And they, in 2019, passed a whole new series of criminal justice legislation, which made much more sense, which saved the state of Oklahoma many, many millions and millions and millions of dollars and the crime rate went down. Right, and they released, what, about 527 nonviolent that, offenders. That's right. And what they did was they made certain low-level felonies into misdemeanors right. and released people, and it was a much more uh, appropriate uh, kind of level of justice and incarceration. And not only did they save a large amount of money, but their crime rate went down. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the that because anytime you talk about releasing prisoners, every oh, it's all going to go to heck in a handbasket, and of course, yeah, well, yeah, one, but, one but again, the the focus of the book is the federal system, yeah, because again, that's really where the most important cases are tried, right? That's where the most important uh, prosecutions are brought. You know, you have the power of the U.S. Treasury, you have the IRS, you have the FBI, you have the DEA. Um, you have assistant U.S. attorneys, and um, these are professionals. These are, and in in the big cities, you have the most significant offices, like you have in the Northern District of Illinois, in the Everett Dirksen Building. You have a, a very powerful, very well-run U.S. Attorney's Office in yeah. Chicago, the Northern District, and in you have two in New York City, and in all the major cities, you have these really powerful uh, prosecutorial offices that can do a lot. And the, but nobody likes the new system. Nobody likes the new reality because the assistant U.S. attorneys that I, the job that I had so many years ago, they're not getting the trial skills no. that they're, um, that they came into the job for. And judges don't like just supervising over what, um, is just like an automatic system. Uh, and defense lawyers like to try cases. And so nobody, nobody is happy with the situation, but nonetheless, it continues and continues. And the reason it continues is because the public doesn't know anything about what uh, the attorney Mark Garagos calls uh, the dirty little secret of our criminal justice system. And that dirty little secret is that there are no trials. Right. Right, and it becomes very difficult for politicians to tackle that because their opponents easily can just brand them soft on crime. Exactly. Uh, you know, you got a, you got a thing where the average average voter uh, probably gets the seven second soundbite, if that. 
And so exactly. it's exactly. very easy. You know, there, there's so many different things that politicians stay away from because they know that they can be eaten alive. But in the meantime, it's not until someone is in this position that they realize that we're, we're not talking about justice. We're, we're literally talking about uh, uh, a crime in of itself. You're forced to take a plea or they threaten you with basically your life is over. And, uh, you know, anybody who says, well, it's not going to affect me. Increasingly, I see double jeopardy when things are tried both on the state and the federal level. And we're seeing more of that. Well, you know, again, you know, Congress in its wisdom uh, worked its magic with this thing called the federal sentencing guidelines. And essentially what they were saying was sentencing in criminal cases is too important to leave to judges. <laughs> and that's what and, and that is the system that they that they created. They didn't intend to eliminate trials, but that's what happened. And that's why you have um, judges from uh, the late Justice Scalia who uh, decried the system to one of the most famous judges in New York named Judd Rakoff, who uh, his quote is that the system is now being run behind closed doors. Yeah, it is. It, ab- it that, absolutely that, is. That's crazy. Right. So again, what I'm trying to do in the book is to recreate the reality of what really was. You know, lawyers like me um, can't watch lawyer movies. <laughs> you know, we can't watch TV um, and, and lawyer shows because it's nonsense. So what I did was I tried to recreate the four or five decades where the trials were abundant in this country. And you had superstar lawyers like Ben Braffman, like Pat Tewitt, like all of these these extraordinarily talented people. And I try to recreate and bring to the average reader just the beauty, the incredible talent of these extraordinary performers and indicate that this is a dying breed. This is the equivalent of losing the coral reefs you know that you, you you can't you, you you can't do without them and how are we going to replicate the system that created them i don't know but until there's public awareness nothing's going to be done right no that that's true and uh, apart from that what we really have got here is we have the fact like you say the, the decisions made in hidden uh, hidden quarters all of what we think about the justice system to be is eviscerated by that and totally correct when you look at federal sentencing guidelines the law that, that i think they're most associated with is the law of unintended consequence i don't yeah. think that anybody expected this to happen and now that it had unless there's public outcry no politician will tackle this. I'm talking to Robert Katzberg, The Vanishing Trial, The Era of Courtroom Performers and the Perils of Its Passing. If you want to weigh in, I would love that. 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James, and it's WGN Radio. Will everyone please rise? Because in this court, the judge of love resides. Will the jury take its place? Now, will the plaintiff kindly state his case? I got a letter today and cried with every word she had to say. I was so hurt. Great. 
on cap number three on the r&b charts 25 on the pop charts they were a dc group al johnson who was in that later in special delivery so unifics i'm raleigh james we are talking about the game of court the vanishing trial the era of courtroom performers and the perils of its passing and oh it was a show and that's that's the fun part to read but more to the point it was justice it was justice in open court and only 2% of federal cases now actually going to a trial. That is, that is just mind-numbing. And as I say, when I first read that, when I first uh, cracked open the book, I, w- I was stunned. I'm still stunned. I would assume that that figure is virtually unknown by everybody who isn't in the federal justice system. Totally correct. Um, that is exactly the point of my wanting to write the book. You know, I've met a lot of really smart people in my life, people who could, uh, um, you know, uh, do uh, physics, people who were mathematicians, people who were scholars, people who could speak 12 languages, uh, whatever it may be, but nobody who is not an insider in the federal criminal justice system is aware that there are no more trials. And when you tell them, they're astounded, and they can't believe, how could that be? And, you know, it's interesting because anyone who's been called for jury duty for a federal court, invariably, they don't have to, they don't have to report. I mean, that's kind of a standard thing. Well, now I know why. There aren't any trials. Yep. That's well, putting aside, you know, putting aside the whole pandemic problem, which has created all kinds of other, you know, other issues, you know, um, they call it jury duty for a reason. That's our obligation as a citizen. Uh, there are only two ways where the average person impacts the federal government, voting and serving on a jury. Right. And we are now losing. I mean, people are very much aware of uh, all kinds of maneuvering to try to limit the impact of voting uh, in terms of all kinds of, you know, whether it's gerrymandering or whatever it may be, and people are aware of that. But what people are not aware of is that the, other, the only other vehicle we have for controlling our government, for inputting our, our power of people on the criminal justice system, is vanishing. Oh, absolutely. And uh, years ago, there was the the big movement for the fully informed jury to try laws as well as defendants. And a lot of those people just wound up in jail. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, that that wasn't discussed as much, maybe in some uh, severe libertarian circles, but for the most part, not among the the common people. And, you know, you know, the joke, you know, it well, uh, a jury is 12 people too dumb to get out of jury duty. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a certain amount of truth to that. And yet, Everyone I have urged to go, because friends will occasionally, I got a jury summon, should I go? Absolutely you should go. I haven't had anybody who didn't have a positive experience if they actually sat on a jury. You, you, you raise 
uh, a wonderful point. You know, after criminal trials are over, many times the judge will allow the lawyers, assuming the jurors are willing, to interview jurors in a post-verdict setting. And it's a wonderful learning experience for lawyers because you learn what you did they liked, what you did they didn't like, Mm -hmm. what you thought they understood but didn't really. Okay, you learn so much. But one of the things that's almost an invariable takeaway from those post-verdict sessions, a juror will say to me, you know something, Mr. Casper, when I got this jury notice, I really was very unhappy. I really didn't want to do this. But now that I've done it, I am so happy that I did. I am so grateful that I played a role, and I feel so much more positively about it than I ever had before. Yeah, that's common. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I hear, hear that all the time. Uh, one thing that surprised me about federal trials that I did not realize was that uh, the voir dire is done more by the judge than the attorneys. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. man, because uh, I was an expert witness in California for years in, in media cases, broadcasting, and to me, if I could sit in on voir dire, that's when I could pretty much tell you what was going to happen. That was so sure. key. And so when you lose that as, uh, as an attorney, how do you circumvent that? Um, you, it's very hard to do so. Uh, it's much easier. That's, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to win federal cases. Uh, it's not only that you're up against the federal treasury. You know, I've been fortunate enough in my career to represent some wealthy people, but nobody had as much money as the U.S. Treasury. And you don't have the IRS on your side or the FBI on your side. Um, so you're always, you're always the underdog, but in the federal system, as you point out, um, the judge basically picks the jury, and there's no interaction between oh. counsel uh, and the prospective jurors. You can't develop a relationship. You can't get a human sense of people. Uh, federal juries are picked very quickly. Yes, yes, no, no, and call the next case. And you don't know who you're dealing with, you think. And so you end up choosing juries based upon ridiculous, simplistic stereotypes. What is this person's income? What is his race? What is his religion? What is his background? Uh, What is his education? All of these ridiculous stereotypes that you think tell you something which may not tell you anything meaningful at all. And it's only the really wealthy people, wealthy defendants, who have what they call mock trials that can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars recreating a trial before the trial, picking, uh, uh, paying people to serve as jurors. That's the closest you can come in the federal system. And even that, I've had limited experience with that. I wasn't crazy about it as an outcome. But you are shooting in the dark. You are just hoping against hope that you understand who's in the box. But that's, and, and it's not as a matter of law. It's just as a matter of practice. And this is the way it has been uh, for more than a century, and I don't see anything changing that. No, I agree. I want to talk about Sandra Jury number 11, but we got a couple people who want to talk to you. Donald from Chicago, welcome to WGN Radio. Hello, yes. I'm, um, I'm, uh, I was a convicted uh, federal felon. I took a deal, and the deal was thrown out by the judge, and I ended up doing a lot more time. And uh, because the judge thought I would get the help I needed at the time, I was uh, very much alco- an alcoholic, 
And he, he, the judge thought that I would get more help in prison rather than putting me on the street sooner. So they threw out the deal, and I ended up doing two and a half times uh, the, as much as I uh, as I bargained for. And uh, the prison had no such program. They had no such program, so I just suffered. Oh, jeez. Were you in the northern district of Illinois? That I needed. Were hmm? you in the northern? Were you in the northern district? Yeah, of I was Illinois? in the seventh district, right up here. Yeah, I was. I, I was incarcerated at uh, seventy-one West Van Buren for two years straight. Mm. Wow! And I was. I signed for like for like uh, eighteen months. You know, seventeen, eighteen months, and then they right. ended up doing that. I got out six months earlier because they offered to go to the Supreme Court because they were they were extending my sentence on a technicality and that had nothing to do with my crime. So, so Tapia versus USA came out, came down the pike while I was incarcerated, and they took advantage of that so I could get out six months earlier and easier terms. Right. How are you doing now? Oh well, you know I'm on disability. I'm I'm 67 now. All this happened when I was in my mid 50s, and I came out, and I was more crippled than I when I went in, and I didn't get the proper medical attention because I was on Prozac at the time, and now I'm taking about triple as much medication, and I'm, I'm I basically can't work, and I'm on a very minimal disability. Mm. I'm so sorry. So I'm actually I'm more on a welfare type system in a way. I'm sorry, as a senior on disability. Donald, thank you for calling. I really appreciate it. Oh, that's okay. Uh, People have a right to know these things. Now, that's interesting. I don't think it came up in your book that these you'd make these deals. You're not going to trial. You make these deals. The judge, the judge can throw it out? No, I, I'm, I'm really not quite sure what he was referring to. Understand this. Um, in federal, the federal court, you don't have a right to plead guilty. There's a thing called Rule 11 of the federal rules of criminal procedure, the judge has to determine that your plea is knowing and voluntary, that there's a factual basis for it, that you haven't been promised something stupid. You know, don't worry, the judge is not going to send you to jail. You're going to get two weeks in Hawaii or something like that, right? But um, I'm not sure what the gentleman was was, um, actually actually referring to. But, um, yeah, it, it didn't make sense, frankly, from a federal criminal justice system. That's why I asked him where it took place. Right. Interesting. All right. We've got Doc in Missouri. Welcome, Doc, to WGN Radio. Hey, Raleigh. Great interview. Thank you. Uh, I got a quick comment and a question. The comment, when you talked about this guest in this book last night, it made me think back to one good courtroom uh, performer, and that was Jerry Spence. Oh, yes. That you always saw in many interviews, always had the suede jacket with the print. Brands and the beautiful hair and the sideburns. But my question is, who makes up the 2% that, you started to answer this, I think, but who makes up the 2% that do go to trial? Because they got Flynn to agree to a plea deal, all the college admissions people. You know, is it only the rich? Is it pro bono? Is it foundations suing the government? Uh, going That's a good question. Trial, and, and, there, uh, and, and frankly, I don't have great statistics. I don't have great statistics on this, but I'll tell you this that it, it seems to be the same sample that used to be the 10% that went to trial. That is to say, people who have court-appointed lawyers, either under the federal court appointment system or the um, what, what they call the uh, Federal Defender Service, mm-hmm. or the wealthy, or the people who could afford the top-flight lawyers. It's the same basic mix of the 
population that goes to trial. It's just a much smaller percentage of it. The thing that I've noticed, and I only noticed this actually, I don't think it's, it might be federal, I don't know, the whole college admission scandal where some people, well, one of the people who uh, has held out and will not uh, plead guilty, well, she also is a Harvard lawyer. If she pleads guilty to a felony, she's going to lose her license. So what I was thinking is the people who folded seem to have less less to lose by having that on their record. And so the people who are going to lose more, they're kind of hanging out for a little more. So maybe that's a part of it, too. Well, I mean, it, 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 might, it might very well be. But the main uh, issue, the most significant problem, is you would want to cut your time, you cut your exposure, that you just can't imagine going to jail for seven years right. And when you're told, when you're given a plea that will, in all likelihood, give you uh, two and a half or three years versus seven years, you take it. You take right. it exactly. You, ju- you just, you just take it. You, and you mentioned some people with uh, the. Uh public defender or whatever that is called in the sure. federal system, but very often you've got somebody who basically says you have to take this, you know, uh, who, who are not going to see it through. So there's... Well, you know, and that's the problem of having too few lawyers with the skill set to do it, to do the job. Yes. And if a lawyer is afraid that he or she really can't handle it, right. they may, in order to keep the case, may say, you know what, let's just plead out. Exactly. So, Doc, okay. great question. Thank you for calling. Thank you. It sounds like the uh, the defense attorneys are getting bullied as much as the client. Yes, it does. Thanks. All right. Thank you. So, Diane is in Chicago. Hello, Diane. Welcome to WGN Radio. Hi, Ronnie. Um, this may not be sort of in the category of, you know, of seriousness of, of people who are charged you know, with very terrible criminal conduct and whatever, and whether they've done it or not. But I agree with, agree with you on jury duty. I do like jury duty. I haven't been called that often, but I do enjoy it, and I think it is a duty. And then the other thing about impacting is, like you said, voting, which I also have been an election judge. So anyway, but I was arrested long ago, and it was a federal arrest, and I think the repercussions are still there employment-wise. So I've tried to, I, but I do like the law, and I have I've, I've, I've done pro se lawsuits in federal court. Well, the winding road of that, when it comes to, um, when you say about, what does Mr. Katzberg say about attempting to get a lawyer for those types of cases when they say the government has deep pockets and then you can't really get one, and then if you are accused, you have a public defender, but the, but the gearing is always toward, of course, the power of the federal government and even the public defender is a federal employee. So anyway, um, the repercussions, though, on one's personal um, livelihood and everything, when you're by yourself and when you are pro se, you don't get you know the 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 opportunity to really get into district court easily, and you have to do a lot of research, even if you enjoy it and you like the law and respect the law. Um, it's very uphill, it's, and, and getting appointed as an attorney, a lot of lawyers do not care to be appointed, and they will withdraw, and the judge will grant the, the withdrawal motion. That happened to me in an employment case twice, and the third time I did have a lawyer. I did get a settlement, but the lawyer urged me to settle, which I don't think lawyers are 
supposed to force you to settle, but they do urge you to settle. And I did want to go to trial and get or get deeper into the issue, which pertains to my previous yeah. arrest. Well, well, I I think what uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I think exactly what she said is your point throughout this book is that there are fewer and fewer attorneys who are wanting to go to trial, who are comfortable going to trial. Yeah, because it's a situation where they'll the core number of available attorneys who could really do the job is shrinking, and, 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 and that is the problem. But I will point out that if you're talking about on the criminal side now, and I believe that the caller was both on the criminal side and the civil side, but on the criminal side, the Federal Defenders Unit, uh, the uh, appointed lawyers for indigent defendants, they're very good over the years. You, it's a very hard job to get. And, um, again, when they were in the era of the common trial, when trials weren't so rare, they had a lot of good trial lawyers. And and I've tried cases as a a federal prosecutor in New York against uh, the lawyers from the Federal Defender Service and as co-counsel in cases across the country where multi-defending cases and some of them were represented by, by, uh, you know, uh, legal aid or Federal Defenders Unit. And uh, those lawyers are pretty good. Those lawyers are very good. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disparage the court-appointed lawyers at all. The problem is that they're not getting the chance mm-hmm. to go to trial either. Right. We just need to get them in those trials. Robert Katzberg yeah. is our guest, The Vanishing Trial, the Era of Courtroom Performers and the Perils of Its Passing. And really, you haven't heard the half of it. You need to read the book. If you want to call us, you want to get the final word, do it now, 888-876-5593-8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. Be on the lookout for Buchanan and Goodman, last seen wearing black denim trousers and motorcycle boots. Look out! They're after us! Let's get out of here! Are you Buchanan and Goodman? Yes, we are. Well, this is a summons. You're under arrest. And they were actually in 1956. Buchanan and Goodman were sued for flying saucer, that break-in record. Obviously, copyright and all those kind of things. So instead of uh, instead of being quiet, they uh, they released Buchanan and Goodman on trial. It was on Luniverse, their own label. That originally was Universe, but then they found out someone else owned that name, so they by hand wrote an L on every record and <laughs> number 80 on the pop uh, pop charts. I have no idea how that uh, ultimately resolved, but what I do know is that trials in general will not resolve nearly as well as they should when you're taking open court and the role of the jury out of it and going to a plea bargain. 98% of federal trials have gone that way. Now, Robert Katzberg is joining us here in the waning moments, and the vanishing trial, the era of courtroom performers and the perils of its passing, is absolutely worth the read. But as you, uh, a- as you look at this, uh, well, there's, there's so many ways to go, and I've got so little time. So I, w- I guess I want to ask, tell me about Sandra, jury number 11. It's, it, it indicates just what the problem is in jury selection. Uh, I had uh, this trial where there was one seat left in the jury box, and I had no more challenges, and there was nothing about this woman that I could complain about other than the fact that I got a very bad vibe, nothing more, nothing worse. 
and she wouldn't look at me, and she uh, just was impossible to watch the whole trial. Uh, she never smiled, never did anything uh, that showed any kind of interest in my position. Uh, other jurors would be laughing at certain lines of mine in the summation. She just sat there stone cold. Turns out, um, fortunately, I got an acquittal, and about two weeks later, my thought was that I got the verdict despite her, not because of her. About two weeks later, I got the first and last note I ever got from a juror telling me how much she appreciated uh, my performance and that everything that I said to the jury was going to happen actually happened. And she said that God should bless me and God should bless my client. Uh, And I put that story in the book only because it shows how little I know about jury selection. Well, or anybody, really. And that's a that's a terrific exactly. story. And, you know, uh, with all the time I did the expert witnessing, I came away saying, you know, it's the game of court. It's like Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers wrote the rules of what can be said, what can't be said. But in order to play this game, you have to have a jury. And yep. I am just horrified by what you've written. You know, again, 2%. I'll be saying that for months. And hopefully public sentiment will be to the point that there will be an outcry that maybe politicians can no longer avoid uh, really the elephant in the room when it comes to our justice system. I'm so glad you wrote it, and I'm so glad you spent well, an hour you. with us. Thank you for doing well, it. Thank you so much. It's, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate your time. All right. Good luck. Robert Katzberg, The Vanishing Trial, The Era of Courtroom Performers, The Perils of Its Passing. And if you're saying, well, that sounds like a dry read. No, it is a, it is a fabulously fun read in many ways. You're going to be able to read some of the closing arguments and so much more in that. And I think some of the funniest books I have are the transcripts from trials. Uh, the Texas attorney, realizing that he was about to go down in flames, interrupted himself and said, Your Honor, I'd like to strike the next question. <laughs> yeah, or uh, all the questions about, uh, and, and this is your son? Yes. How long have you known him? Things. <laughs> Yeah, it's just there was one where uh, they asked an adopt uh, an auto uh, a doctor a coroner how many autopsies have you performed on dead people they've all been on dead people things of that but the exasperation in one guy's uh, uh, voice when he answered a question with are you sure you're an attorney just classic stuff so the book will uh, the book will make you laugh as well.